Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Brian Strayer. Thanks for talking with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, you have uh, been around writing history in the Adventist context and beyond, and today we're talking about your latest book, Hiram Edson, The Man and the Myth, published by Oak and Acorn, available on Amazon, and uh, folks can get to it on the Spectrum website. What led you to go back to before the Adventist Church uh, and get right to the day after the Great Disappointment, a man who played a pivotal role in defining uh, the theological landscape of this denomination? Well, Alex, uh, one thing that particularly attracted me to Edson is the same thing that attracted me to Byington and and Loughborough, my other biographies. I'm an upstate New York guy. I grew up in the burned over district, so to speak, uh, about 100 years later. But uh, these are all New York guys. And uh, so Edson uh, was attracted to me simply because he grew up uh, in Port Gibson, which is just a few miles north of Waterloo where I was born and raised. And we have no books, uh, no biographies, not even a children's storybook on Hiram Edson. Uh, And yet, you know, he pops up uh, occasionally whenever the sanctuary message is discussed, whenever October 23, 1844 comes up. And uh, knowing, as I did from my college history courses, that Hiram Edson and Joseph Smith were neighbors. Uh, They were only four miles apart. And uh, I thought, well, isn't this interesting? You know, we've got Hiram Edson with his uh, supernatural experiences he called presentments, and we've got Joseph Smith, you know, with with angelic visitations uh, uh, by the angel Moroni, as he claimed. So it it fascinated me. Here, Here are two guys near neighbors, burned over district, upstate New York, in the area where I was raised. I wanted to find out more about uh, our medicine. Well, place obviously plays a role in the, the biography of Edson, and you spend some time really helping us understand the burned over district and the incredibly fertile religious landscape that was. Can you detail that? Again, well, uh, I would suggest that for those who want a broad background on the Burnover District, probably Jerome Clark's three-volume set, eighteen forty-four, would be a textbook approach. Um, he he covers in volume one the religious movements that were coterminous of the Burnover District, and and that's uh, Mormonism and Spiritualism and Adventism are all rising within a 50-mile radius of each other, uh, with Rochester kind of the center, and then uh, Port Gibson for Edson, and uh, and the spiritualist a little farther east, and the Mormons a little farther west. 
And then in volume two, of course, he goes into the social movements. And this is a huge, yeah. huge uh, era of um, uh, reforms um, in government, uh, reforms in society. Uh, this is an age of utopian societies being established. It's an age of temperance movements, anti-slavery, abolitionism, uh, the anti-Masonic party. Uh, just everywhere you look, there is a social reformer uh, starting a, a new movement. And then in his volume three, he deals with intellectual uh, movements, uh, in, including, of course, in 1844, we have Charles Darwin and the original uh, of his uh, Origin of Species. So this is a, um, well, as you know, one historian called it Freedom's Ferment. Sarah <laughs> uh, Endicott Spears, and it certainly is a fermenting era. And Adventism is one of those reform movements uh, in the radical wing that uh, typifies this great uh, era of reform. Well, let's extend that fermentation metaphor and, and say that Edson was certainly intoxicated by the spirits of the age there. Talk to us about how this man, and you use the term presentments there, had his yeah. own spiritual experiences, similar in some ways to others, yet different. Yes, well, by occupation, Hiram Edson was a farmer, and more specifically, a sheep farmer. His land was not very fertile uh, to grow a lot of crops, and so he raised sheep instead. But that's just the surface level. Uh, scratch a little deeper, and I would call Hiram Edson a charismatic. Uh, as a matter of fact, he was a Methodist like Ellen White, and I would put him in the classification of a shouting Methodist. The meetings that were held at their home, Hiram and Esther's home in the 1844 movement, were very ecstatic, very charismatic, very, very um, vigorous and emotional. Uh, Edson had what he called presentments. Now, I think our listeners may be acquainted with the word presentiment, with an I in the middle. That word implies something ominous, something negative, something that is threatening. Edson did not use that word. He used the word presentment, without the I in the middle, to indicate um what the French would call a son et lumière, a sound and light show that was very vivid to him. He never called it a vision, but a presentment was a revelation, so to speak, of something he believed was going to happen very shortly. And he had several of them. And yes, I do detail them mm -hmm. in chapter three, where I talk about the charismatic farmer. And I would go so far as to say, if he were to give a label through what happened to him in the cornfield October 23, he, he would call that a presentment because uh, he did believe and he wrote in a pamphlet that Christ would return in uh, 1845, uh, May of 1845. So he saw these presentments as normally being fulfilled in a very short span of time. Let's 
take a moment and help folks understand the charismatic uh, farmer. You talk about in the book a series of presentments that really drove him to do incredible things, including faith healing. These were not just for his own benefit or the benefit of the uh, suddenly healed uh, man there, but also they resulted in um, uh, mass conversions, one could say. Yes. Yes. Um, most of his presentments were private. Um, he details one that happened in his barn uh, where the granary was, where he saw a being that he took to be an angel standing over him. And um, another time he had a presentment out there in the barn where he saw what he believed to be the Lord uh, instructing him to go heal a neighbor. He um, at first refused, and then he saw the floor, as it were, drop out from under him, and he felt like he was descending toward hell, cried out for help, and uh, again was told to go heal his neighbor. He did. Uh, it was a nighttime visit. Uh, he clambered up the stairs to the bedroom and put his while hand... The, while the family was sleeping, I think. Yes, it was yeah, right, right. Apparently, they didn't lock their front door. <laughs> uh, because he went in all by himself, apparently by candlelight, stumbled up the stairs, put his hands on this man's head and said, the Lord Jesus makes you whole. And the man immediately sprang out of bed and dressed himself. And the next day, his physician came by to see uh, how close to death he was and discovered instead he was out chopping wood. So it was kind of a miraculous uh, healing event there. So he is having presentments. He is uh, a man of action. He's active in the community. Discuss a little bit how he gets connected into the Millerite movement and then post, uh, let's say, let's talk about the Millerite and then we'll talk about the post-Millerite uh, Edson. Uh, from what we know about him and Esther, they apparently were reading uh, Millerite uh, materials, uh, pamphlets, uh, one, at least one, possibly more, of the Millerite uh, newspapers. And um, so he was sort of connected intellectually with what was going on with the Millerite movement. And as, as you know, and I know many of our listeners will know, Rochester was a center of uh, Millerite activity. And so uh, he attended some of the uh, Millerite Adventist meetings in Rochester in 1843 and was apparently uh, converted uh, as a result of those meetings. Well, um, the Methodists did not approve of the Millerite teaching of Christ's soon coming. Uh, they were post-millennials, not pre-millennials. And so um, Edson and Esther began holding private meetings in their home in 1843 and 44. And many of these meetings as well brought converts. Uh, C. Mervyn Maxwell, in one case, uh, estimates upwards of 300 uh, were converted as a result of the Edson's meetings there. But they did stir up some, um, some opposition as well. And I talk about that <laughs> in one of my chapters, Friends and Foes, chapter five. <laughs> yeah, Ellen White noticed it and encouraged him to move. <laughs> That's right. Get out of there. Your life is in danger. <laughs> so 
I think possibly for me, one of the, the most interesting questions that you raise is his later life and if he left the church or if the church left him. But before we get to that, let's talk about what he is famous for. The vision, cornfield, set it up for us like, like your Arthur Spaulding in the 1960s. Take us away to the myth of Edson. Okay, well, I'm sure that most of our listeners are familiar with the the painting of Hiram Edson and his friend uh, Owen Crozier crossing the cornfield, October 23, 1844, and the sky opening up and Edson seeing uh, Jesus going from the holy into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Edson never called that a vision. As you know, in my in my chapter, uh, Disappointed Millerite, I explore uh, basically four views mm -hmm. on that. And there are uh, Adventist historians and writers who refer to that as, as a vision. Edson never did. Uh, there are others who prefer to call it a flash of light that he had. Uh, there's a third group that would prefer to refer to it as an insight that he had. And then there's a fourth group that say, uh, well, nothing really supernatural happened uh, in the cornfield at all. So there really has never been a consistent, settled interpretation of October 23, uh, 1844. Edson would probably have referred to it as a presentment. He has very, very little to say about it at all. And as I point out in my book, one of the big surprises in doing my research is that Edson does not write articles or pamphlets on the Heavenly Sanctuary. You know, we could explore that a little further yeah, later, but he's he more into symbology and, and you know, numerology. He, he's not a sanctuary expositor, really. Let's before we get into you know his love for type and anti-type and how that gets him into trouble with the brethren. This is a crude question, but um, let's let's see where it takes us. Would Adventists? How important was that vision in the emotional uh, life of the Adventists in? Uh, 1843 and beyond, and how important was that in constructing the resulting theology around the investigative judgment? I would see Edson's key role as convincing those Sabbath-keeping Adventists that the Sabbath, the Seventh-day Sabbath, and the sanctuary are part of the third angel's message that they needed to be preaching. I don't see Edson as having much of an impact on the Millerite Adventists, the Sunday-keeping or Advent Christian group. Many of them had already explored the sanctuary. In fact, uh, as I mentioned in my chapter on sanctuary expositors, there were those back in the time of the Protestant Reformation that were actually looking at the heavenly sanctuary as well. And even before Edson came along in 1842, 43, um, there were Millerite Adventists exploring the heavenly sanctuary. But I, I think 
Edson's key role is tying in Sabbath keeping and sanctuary um, for the seventh day, what becomes the seventh day Adventist uh, movement themselves, with the help, of course, of Crozier, with the help of Joseph Bates, James and Ellen White. He didn't do it all himself. Now, as far as Edson's understanding of the sanctuary, he basically, in his autobiographical manuscript, which is very brief, only 12 pages, indicates that his understanding on October 23, 1844, was, number one, the sanctuary is in heaven. It's not this earth. Number two, the sanctuary has two compartments, holy place and most holy place. Number three, Christ was moving from the holy place into the most holy place. That's about the extent of his understanding. It took quite a few months of study uh, by Edson and, and Crozier and Dr. Hahn before they came up with any more. Because we know from Edson's writings that he expected Christ to come within a year. Uh, he set uh, May of 1845, and... Uh, of course, Christ didn't come in May of 1845. So he was looking for a very short atoning work in heaven. And only later, after others uh, uh, developed the theology, and again, I've got a, a chapter on the sanctuary expositors, chapter 9, and that's primarily James White and Uriah Smith, and they brought Crozier into the review, even though by that time Crozier didn't believe in the sanctuary anymore and Charles Sperry and Elon Everts. Those are the men in the 1850s that really expanded and deepened our understanding of the sanctuary, not Edson. Please forgive me for this analogy. Yeah. Edson reminds me of an incredibly talented, creative, uh, inspired, free-thinking musician who creates a one-hit, <laughs> top of the charts rock song that everyone loves and then goes off and gets interested in obscure uh, Himalayan instruments <laughs> and spends his time doing that and kind of, you know, people always admire him for what he contributed to, you know, the larger college of, of uh, let's say, Adventists or musicians. But in this case, he ends up uh, really pursuing the creativity that got him to this really great moment there, uh, October 23, 1844. You mentioned that he's not really involved in developing the theology of the sanctuary. He doesn't write about it. What does he write about? And, and why is that kind of allegorical typological uh, method interesting to him? I think Hiram Edson was very strongly influenced by the writers of the uh, Millerite Advent movement. I trace <clears throat> what he writes in, in chapter 8, Speculative Theologian, back to uh, Miller, Himes, Litch, Fitch, and Bates. Uh, Joseph Bates uh, and Hiram Edson were very, very close friends, best of buddies. Uh, they hiked hundreds of miles together all over Canada and uh, New York and Pennsylvania uh, sharing the Advent message. I think Hiram is taking his cue from the Millerite writers, and they too enjoy uh, what I would call symbolism and uh, numerology. Uh, 
you know, they, they not only expostulate on the 2300-day prophecy and the 1260 and the 70 weeks, but Edson follows them into such, I would call them esoteric uh, timelines as the 1290 days, the 1335 days, and one that Edson just loves. He, he, he devotes seven articles to it. The 2520-day prophecy <laughs> about the gospel going to the Gentiles. I, I think Edson was, in the main, interested in numerology. And he takes his cue from the, from the Millerite writers that I just mentioned. He's also very, very much interested in symbology. Um, he can find a symbol behind every Old Testament bush. <laughs> and he just runs with it. Uh, symbols that you and I would scratch our heads and say, how in the world can he get anything out of that? But he does. Um, and he enjoys making present-day applications, present-day being, of course, 19th century, out of Old Testament symbols. Um, the only other ones outside of the Millerite movement that did that uh, was Claude Brousson in the 16th century, 17th century. Uh, he was a Huguenot uh, pastor. That's another biography that I've written yeah. as well. To Claude Brousson, and I think to Hiram Edson as well, this was a game. This was a biblical game. Uh, you know, you and I, when we were younger, used to play the game Egypt to Canaan, okay? Yeah. Well, this is Hiram Edson's game. Take a symbol, stretch it like a rubber band as far as it will go before it breaks, and bring some application to the current 1844 movement as best you can. I, uh, I can only imagine the frustration that would be for folks who are trying to incorporate a a functioning denomination and string together a few uh, doctrines that will keep everyone kind of yeah. on the same page. How was he received by his friends uh, over the the next few decades? You know, apparently in the 1850s, Hiram Edson's writings were very popular. Uh, James White and Uriah Smith, as editors of the Review, published them frequently. Um, that seemed to be the peak of Hiram Edson's influence in the church, was the 1850s. Outside of the 1850s, as far as I can tell, he only wrote one article in the Review, and that was in 1867. So the first um, decade in which the Review is published seems to be Hiram Edson's uh, high day. Now, with regards to your question, I think Uriah Smith became a bit frustrated because before he published Hiram Edson's seven-part series on the captivity of the Gentiles, he wrote a little caveat at the top of his first article saying, we are not really sure if Hiram Edson is on base with all of this or not, but we are going to publish it anyway and leave it up to the reader to determine whether this is biblical or not. And so on it goes for seven articles. 
And at the end of the seventh article, Hiram Edson actually had to be continued. But there was not an eighth article. I, I think Uriah Smith got tired of it. I think maybe some of the readers got tired of it as well. And so Uriah Smith decided he would shut down that series on the Gentiles. But Hiram Edson never gave up. I liken him in my closing chapters uh, to Washington Irving's character, you know, who wakens up 20 years after falling asleep in the Hudson Valley, and all of a sudden the Americans are, uh, are you know, they're not British anymore, and uh, he feels out of place. I, I think Hiram Edson fell out of place. By the 1870s, he didn't fit anymore. You explore that, uh, and it's a poignant part of the book. He receives ministerial credentials year after year, and then all of a sudden it stops. Why do you think it stopped? To the best of my knowledge, the one thing that brought an end to it was an incident that occurred, I believe, in the 1870s when Hiram Edson wrote a 200-page manuscript in which he, in great detail, I'm sure very dry and boring detail, uh, examined the role of Great Britain in the end-time prophetic scope of things. Based on a few verses in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, referring to a lion, right. And he took the lion as a symbol of Britain. <laughs> now, <clears throat> he submitted this to the Review and Herald Book Committee, which consisted of James White and J.N. Andrews and J.N. Loughborough and Uriah Smith. And those brethren decided it wasn't worth publishing. They said, you've got about 12 pages here of really good stuff. You know, it was the autobiographical stuff. We'll publish that. And Edson said, no, you publish it all or publish none of it. You know, I believe this is light from the Lord. And Jay and Andrews allegedly said to him, well, I'm going to spoil your light. And turned him down. Edson took that very hard. You know, some authors take rejection uh, philosophically. Uh, others take it personally. And I think Edson took this very, very personally. And I say that because the very last thing he mentioned in 1882, in his living will, his last will and testament, was this manuscript. His, his final will is only 14 lines long, but seven of those lines are devoted to this 200-page manuscript, which he still wanted his wife to get published for him after he died. So I think Edson took that really hard. Uh, as far as we know, for a while, he stopped attending church. He never attacked the church. Uh, I don't believe he left the doctrines behind. But um, I, I kind of make the argument, Alex, uh, this probably makes me a radical, that the church left him. Edson oh. didn't fit anymore. He fit the church of the 1850s. He did not fit the church of the 1870s and the 80s. It had changed so drastically. I think that's so interesting because I think that's if you sort of live within the culture 
of uh, of a denomination, obviously Adventism. You kind of some folks I think can maybe convert in. They enter at some point and they feel like, okay, I've got these twenty eight beliefs figured out. The church is going to be like this, and you know, change happens. Oh. And the pressures of society, uh, no matter how hard uh, a, a church tries to resist that, it, it happens and it forces the folks inside to sort of think things through. And I feel like Edson, in a way, folks who are conservative can read into his experience there, feel like, hey, where was the, where were the, the way marks the anchor points of the eight of 1848 <laughs> you know where, could we get back to that and i'm sure it was a sort of social experience for him the way you write it i think he would throw out these speculations in person or in writing and he wanted to see what people would come back not unlike a a blogger today i want to print something and read the comments are people getting what i'm are, are they hitting what i'm pitching yeah, I think Edson was more of a uh, spectrum personality sure. uh, than an Adventist review in the 1870s personality. He liked the give and take very much, the open dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a cre- he, he was interested in the creativity of thought um, and not uh, reining it in. You devote uh, chapter 12, your final chapter to Edson's legacy. And in I think it's interesting because it becomes a para-denominational story. Uh, it's about denominational history, but you follow a, a really interesting, you could call it a, a, a self-supporting or supporting ministry in the Adventist church. And the story you tell there returns us to place and uh, helps us think about the ways that um, material culture um, help gives us uh, meaningful religious experiences. Yes, well, actually, um, chapter 12 is devoted to the what I would call the rehabilitation of Hiram Edson's uh, reputation. When he died in 1882, he really died under a cloud, uh, a cloud of doubt, uh, a cloud of questioning, questioning his orthodoxy, questioning his orthopraxy, since he has stopped going to church. Um, And for the next 80 years, really, 1882 to the 1960s, uh, there's not much written about Edson at all. Uh, His name does not appear in denominational histories. Uh, even Loughborough, in his two history books, uh, in 1892 and 1905, devotes only four sentences to Hiram he, Edson. Only four. Point out that Loughborough was sort of a protege of Edson. They spent exactly. a lot of time together. Yeah, Edson trained Loughborough as a young minister in his 20s in New York State and Pennsylvania. So you would think that Loughborough would, uh, you know, devote a great deal of attention to his mentor, but he does not. So consequently, it isn't until the 1940s to 1960s that we begin to see Edson's name reappearing, particularly in the writings of Arthur W. Spaulding. Now, Spaulding did not know Edson personally. Spaulding uh, 
I do my math correctly, he must have been about five years old when Edson died. So he didn't know him personally. Of course, Spalding grew up in Michigan and uh, Edson in, in upstate New York. But in his books, um, I'm thinking of Footsteps of the Pioneers, for example. That was 1947. Uh, Captains of the Host, 1949. And then that four-volume set, Origin and History of Seventh-day Adventists, Volume 1, 1961. Um, Spalding devotes a great deal of attention to Hiram Edson and his contributions to the early church in the 1850s and 60s. And consequently, I would say Spalding is largely responsible for uh, reviving and rehabilitating the, the uh, reputation of Hiram Edson. And then in the 1980s, along comes a group originally called Adventist Historic Properties, uh, today uh, Adventist Historic uh, or Adventist Heritage Ministries. And by <clears throat> reestablishing the Hiram Edson site, and I, I don't know if you've been there. I trust some of our listeners have. No, I haven't had the privilege. Okay. It's right there on the Edson property. And they've got a visitor center. And they moved um, Hiram Edson's father's barn, Luther Edson's barn, because we don't have Hiram's barn anymore. But Luther Edson lived a few miles away from his son. And so they moved his barn out of the property. For a while, they had a model of the earthly sanctuary there, too. Um, and they have created a, um, uh, a sort of a prayer, uh, garden prophecy walk and prayer garden there. And every year they have, uh, what they call sanctuary festival gatherings there, local churches across New York state. And, uh, whenever the uh, general conference is somewhere nearby, and that's a relative term because Toronto is not all that close and St. Louis is not all that close. But huge buses bring people in uh, to the site. So by reestablishing the Hiram Edson uh, locale there, uh, there has been a revival of Hiram Edson's uh, reputation as well as a focus on the uh, heavenly sanctuary message today. You mentioned Spalding, and let's return there because I'd love your your reflections on historiography. It's pretty clear you document Hiram Edson was not an important Adventist figure um, for the 40 years before that plus. And then all of a sudden, he really is uh, at the center of the Adventist narrative. He gets written about uh, there's more pages devoted to him. Uh, clearly, there's art devoted to him. And he becomes this really central figure. Can you talk about what, what – can you give an assessment of Spalding's historiography? What was he uh, – what did he accomplish there that other historians didn't? And, and what effect did that have in kind of the Adventist imagination from the 60s up through, let's say, at least through the 80s. From reading his private correspondence, and we do have at the Center for Adventist Research here at the James White Library at Andrews University, we do have many, many, many of Spalding's letters. I think he knew more about Hiram Edson than he was able to actually put into his books and articles. 
uh, his rather frank letters uh, to his uh, contemporaries uh, are very revealing. He wanted to put the early pioneers somewhere between the angelic level and the horse flesh level. In fact, he has that famous phrase that he, he believed that the pioneers were were closer to horse flesh than they were to angels. Uh, that that really upset Arthur S. Maxwell. Uh, he, he wrote a letter protesting the use of such an inelegant phrase as that. Um, Spalding consciously modeled his writing style after the popular writer Van Wyck Brooks, who was very, very popular in the 1940s and 50s. He takes a narrative approach, somewhat anecdotal, but there's a little analysis along the way. But I think Arthur Spalding would like to have said more than he actually could say, because Pacific Press and the Review Press were censoring uh, Adventist history. They had a certain ideal for the pioneers that almost, I would call it the halo effect. Uh, we must portray the pioneers. Uh, yeah, maybe they weren't perfect, but um, they had good hearts and they did good work. Uh, Spalding himself, as he wrote about Hiram Edson toward the end of his life, uh, uh, made a statement about how we, we need to be charitable. Hiram Edson uh, did some things that weren't correct, that weren't the best, that weren't right. But, you know, Hiram Edson typifies some of our other pioneers who, um, you know, had their faults and their foibles, and their failings, but they did some good work, too. They helped the church at a time when the church needed leadership, and there were very few leaders. So I think that um, Spalding would say that Hiram Edson's key role was helping bridge the gap from the Millwright movement into the Sabbatarian Adventist movement. The 1844 to 1860 period was Hiram Edson's um, glorious time period. And he filled a, an important role there. And yes, if he kind of fell by the wayside later, uh, we must try to be charitable toward him. Thanks for talking to me about um, your fantastic book. It's uh, just a delight to read. It, it, um, the storytelling uh, is, you don't, uh, by being very careful with the facts, you don't neglect a good tale. So I appreciate that. And uh, my final question is, you have written, you know, devoted your scholarly work to French history and, and you're focusing on these Adventist biographies. What do you find um, kind of fulfilling in that as, as a historian yourself? Um, writing about one's own religious heritage can be revealing. It can also be painful. It's certainly not lucrative. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, these days, what, what attracts you to digging into someone here? You mentioned place before. 
Uh, but it's more than that. As a historian, what's what's interesting? What 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 drives you? Um, and and what has surprised you in this process? What have you discovered that you weren't expecting? Well, you know, I think Alex, that is my chief reason for doing research. You just never know what little gems, what little surprises are going to pop up in the primary sources. I, I experienced that in my research in French history. Uh, in the many years I devoted to that in Paris, and certainly in uh, Seventh-day Adventist history, as one gets into the uh, primary sources, letters, diaries, early church documents, and so forth. As far as Edson is concerned, uh, it did surprise me to discover that uh, he had these presentments, that he felt like he was in the presence of an angelic being, Um and then only four miles away in uh, East Palmyra was Joseph Smith having alleged experiences with another angel named Moroni. So I couldn't help, I couldn't just couldn't resist the phrase, the hills of upstate New York were alive with the sounds of the supernatural. <laughs> uh, not always musical, but uh, certainly uh, a supernatural. Uh, I've mentioned another surprise already, and that is I expected to find a number of articles by Hiram Edson on the Heavenly Sanctuary and was very, very surprised uh, to discover that he basically uh, turned that over to uh, to his friend. Owen Crozier wrote the articles on the sanctuary, uh, not only in the Millerite Advent uh, material and uh, journals, uh, papers, but also uh, was excerpted in the uh, Advent Review and, and Sabbath Herald. I was surprised as well to discover that Hiram Edson, like John Byington and some of our other pioneers, was an abolitionist and also an anti-Mason, which was very popular in the 1820s and 30s, the anti-Mason or anti-Masonic party. Um, he saw Ellen White in vision at least four times. And he copied notes on those visions and handed them to uh, Ellen. And uh, she apparently used his notes to refresh her memory on some of those visions that she had seen in four different places throughout New York and, and New England. Um, a really big surprise for me was to discover how distinguished uh, Hiram Edson's uh, background was, his genealogy. I mean, here's a guy that we all think was a plain sheep farmer, but Hiram Edson was descended from three of the signers of the Mayflower Compact of 1620. Hmm. Five of his great uncles fought in the American Revolution. His father, Luther, fought in the War of 1812. So Hiram Edson really came from very distinguished stock. He, uh, he could have joined the General Society of Mayflower Descendants but it wasn't established till 1897, which was 15 years after he died. And he could have joined the National Society of the Sons of the American Revolution, but that wasn't established till 1889, seven years after his death. So he really did have very distinguished uh, background uh, despite his humble occupation. So these are some of the surprises that popped up along the way. Well, I want to thank you again for devoting your uh, time and talents to giving us this uh, biography, and I certainly recommend it to everyone listening here. It, thank you. 
it's uh, it goes beyond just helping us think about the man and the myth and, and helps us think about uh, what that means for us today. Thank you for your time, Alex. I've enjoyed it very much. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive.